Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Brandon, thank you so much for being on the podcast now that we've got it figured out. Thanks, Sam, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, our guest that just jumped on missed the uh, chaos of my Zoom getting hacked by, <laughs> by some interesting, uh, interesting people. So that happened just a few minutes ago, but we're good to go. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about high-level tax strategies, really quickly give us a two-minute introduction on you and then I'll expound on it after that and tell people why I have you on the show. Sure. So I am a CPA. I run a CPA firm. I've got 16, 17 employees now. We're adding, we've been adding quite a few employees over the past month and we've got a couple more to onboard over the next month. So we'll probably be at 19 here within a couple weeks. But anyway, our firm is 100% remote. We, we have employees in a lot of different states, a lot of different areas. We only work with real estate clients. So we will not onboard clients unless they are involved in real estate in some capacity. Uh, we have about 550 clients across the United States. We do have clients in every state. And yeah, we just, we love real estate. We, most of my team invests in real estate themselves. We've got about 320 units between the nice. 16 or 17 of us. And uh, yeah, it's been a good time, but we provide tax strategies and advisory services to a lot of our clients. So we help them sift through the tax law and help them understand what they need to do to execute the tax strategies. And then we'll provide the compliance piece on the back end, which is typically preparing the tax returns and making sure that everything's buttoned up. And then we've recently been rolling out some accounting services for our like mid-sized clients. We've always done CFO services for our large clients and recently figured out how to offer relatively competitive pricing on accounting services for mid-sized clients. So that's been a fun, a fun What's thing. What's a mid-sized client? A mid-sized client for us is probably somebody that has 20 to 50 properties. Okay. So like a single landlord. If you're in that syndication space, then we would consider more of that CFO space. We've been providing accounting services to those guys for a while. So Got it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited. And the, the way I found you is a podcast. So I want to make sure first people know that you have a fantastic podcast that gives some really good details and good examples and good stories. And so I'll make sure that's in the show notes. I'll make sure my friends Thanks. and listeners have that. And I searched it out. So I, I said, I need answers on a couple of these things. And I searched it out. So I want to tell you a story really quick. And this is what the, the reason I had you on. So in, in 2018, there was a realtor who made seven figures for the first time and wasn't really prepared for the tax implications and ended up writing um, about $350,000, a total of uh, $350,000 in checks to the government. Had the planning been a little bit better, that could have been avoided. And some of that money went towards investments and different tax write-off strategies that yielded zero returns. It was strictly a, an expense. And I feel like that is the traditional way that accountants go is you need to buy a car, you need to buy a house, 
go buy some new stuff for your business, new computers, whatever it is. And Utah is notorious for these CPAs where these guys that are um, making money knocking doors, which is my background, they'll just tell them to go buy a new car every single year or what a big truck or something. So you got all these guys driving around in massive F-350s and they spend 70 grand on a new truck every year. So anyways, back to this realtor. And I actually have friends, I was telling you earlier, that are making seven figures that are getting similar advice. One of my friends in Tennessee, just um, his CPA was telling him to go buy his wife and himself a new car cash. He was going to spend about 200000 paying cash. And I was like, oh my gosh, buddy, <clears throat> you realize how much money I can make you with 200000 That'll pay your payments for the cars. So anyways, the story of this, that realtor was me in 2018. It was terrible. And I was remembering with my wife the other day how sick to my stomach I was, realizing I had not prepared. I had not saved enough money for taxes. We ended up being fine, but it hurt really bad to not realize jumping up in income that much. I made about 50% more that year than I ever had. How bad it hurt and how poor of advice I felt like I got. That, that's a relatively common story. We, we, can, we consider a lot of that stuff low-hanging fruit. It's good stuff to always focus on, but it's mm -hmm. not necessarily going to move the needle significantly. When you talk about buying vehicles, cer certainly a great strategy, but the very first question we ask is, do you actually need a vehicle? Nope. Uh, because you are doing a couple things when you do this, right? The first thing that you're doing is you're buying an asset that's going to depreciate significantly, so you're going to lose value. Yep. Uh, which can be fine. The tax benefits can outweigh that as long as you reinvest those tax savings. But the other thing that you're doing is you're making a deal with the IRS. You're saying that I'm going to keep this vehicle for five years, uh, or at least, um, you can sell it and buy a new vehicle. That's fine. But for five years, if I own this vehicle for five years, I'm going to use it at least 50% for business use. So if you buy a vehicle, that's fine. If your spouse, if you buy a vehicle for your spouse and you route it through the business, that is an audit trap. That's where you're going to get hit real hard. Got so that's it. some interesting advice. But anyway, we consider that stuff low hanging fruit. You can certainly offset your income through real estate. We like to leverage our dollar. So we want to invest in assets where we can literally use leverage and write a significant amount off. And that's what you get through real estate if you play it smart. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that first. So let's give you a little bit more background. Let's say that I already own and manage let's say two properties, three properties myself here in Utah, close to me, let's say four properties. Actually, that's what I have now. And then I go invest as a passive investor and do a syndication, which I did. Let's say I put just for kicks and giggles, a hundred thousand into this deal. It's a $15 million purchase. And this syndicator is telling me K1s for, for 20, 2020 should be you should show a passive loss of about $50,000. What does that do for me as a realtor and someone who owns my own and manages my own portfolio? Are you a realtor full-time? Yep. So if you are a real estate agent full-time and you don't have any other material participation activities, meaning that you don't have a W-2 job, you don't have another side business or anything like that, then you are most likely a real estate professional for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. So a real estate professional sound is, is found in section 469 of the Internal Revenue Code. And let's just explain what this is real quick. So section 469 says that all rentals are by default passive activities. 
okay? And there's three ways to get around the passive activity rules. And, and when I say get around, what I mean is we want to recharacterize the passive activities as non-passive. Without that recharacterization, if my passive activities generate a loss, then I have a passive loss. And passive losses can only offset passive income. So there's three ways to get around the passive activity rules. First, you earn less than 150K, and you can take up to a $25,000 passive activity loss allowance. Most of our clients earn more than that, so that's something that we don't really focus a ton on. The second option is you dispose of your rental properties or one rental property. When you dispose of a rental, you can use the losses from your other rentals to offset that gain, only up to that gain though. Sometimes that rental will be sold at a loss, at a legitimate loss, and the loss can then be offset your other income, your W-2 income, your 1099 income. So that's option number two to get around I, the passive activity you? rule. What's up? Can I ask you a question about rule number two? Sure. Let's say I make $100,000 selling one of my properties. Mm -hmm. So my gain, I bought it for two thirty, dollars sell it for three thirty. dollars after real estate expenses. Let's just say I net 100000 so is my inter interpretation correct? If I am able to generate passive losses of 100,000, I wouldn't be paying capital gains taxes? Correct. Wow. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. It's all passive. It's all, you, these can, are all passive you, activities. The other thing too is that you could have a passive stake in a business. Doesn't necessarily have to be a rental activity. These are just passive, general passive activity rules. Yeah. So, so okay, rental explain number two better than the way I just explained it. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You have a pretty good idea of it. So the third way to get around the passive activity loss limitations is to qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes. And this is for tax purposes. A lot of people think, well, if I have a real estate license, I'm a real estate professional, which is true on LinkedIn, but not <laughs> in the eyes of the IRS. So to qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes, you have to spend 750 hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate, you also have to spend more than half your time in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. So the 750 hour rule is there to weed out the people that are just being super passive. They're participating very passively in their various real estate ventures. I'm gonna say ventures, not necessarily rental real estate because there's a lot of real property trades or businesses. And that's what we're focused on, at least initially, is the real property trades or businesses. So 750 hours in a real property trader business. If you're a real estate agent and you're doing it full time, you've probably got 1,800 hours. So you meet that test. The got second it. test is more than half your time. More than half your time in a real property trader business. That kicks out everybody that has a full-time W-2 job, right? Because they spend 2,000 hours in their full-time W-2 job. Then they have to go and try to prove that they spend an additional 2,001 hours in real estate. It's just not going to happen. About 100 people have tried. Every single one has lost in tax court. Got um, it. So you have to either have a part-time job where you're spending about 1,000 hours, 1,200 hours, and then you're spending more time in real estate than you are at that part-time job, or you just don't have a job at all and you spend all that time in real estate. Another workaround to this is you have a full-time job but your spouse is a stay-at-home caregiver, whatever, and they go and qualify as a real estate professional because they don't have that half piece. They don't have a full-time job or a part-time job, so all they're targeting is that 750-hour mark. You as a real estate agent, you're going to hit that 750 hours. You're going to hit the more than half your time if you're doing it full-time. So you're a real estate professional. 
Now we're not going to claim you as a real estate professional unless you give us a time log and we actually get some pushback from our clients on that. Like I'm a real estate professional. Why do I need to document it? Because the tax court's going to require it. So if you want us to work with you (laughs) and you're going to give us the time log, right? Every single year. But that's, if you qualify as a real estate professional, then you get over the assumption or the presumption that all rentals are passive. You don't necessarily get to claim them as non-passive because there's a second hurdle that you have to overcome. So you've done a good job overcoming hurdle number one. You qualify as a real estate professional. That's a lot harder to do than a lot of people think. Um, But you're full-time real estate, you're good to go. The second hurdle that you have to overcome is you have to demonstrate that you materially participated in your rental activities. And if you don't enact a grouping election, which is section 469-9, that's the grouping election. You have to make a formal election on your tax returns to make that happen. If you don't enact that, then you have to materially participate in every single one of your rental activities, like individually. And there's seven tests to material participation. The lowest hurdle is you complete substantially all of the participation during the year, meaning that you don't have a property manager, essentially. You're going to manage the property. You're going to call the contractors up. You're going to do the quality inspections. You're going to cut the grass, do the maintenance, maintenance, do the repairs. That's material participation. That's one test. Mm -hmm. The second test is you spend 100 hours in your activity and more than anybody else. So if you have a property manager, you spend 100 hours and more than the property manager. So if the property manager spends 120 hours, you need to spend 121 hours. That second test actually trips a lot of our uh, clients up that are in partnerships because mm-hmm. they all want to materially participate. So if, if Sam and I are partners and Sam spend, spends 110 hours, I want to spend 111 hours. And then Sam's got to go and spend 112 hours. Right. <laughs> so you, like, you end up like competing with each other almost unless you lay out a plan at the beginning to solve for that. Got it. So that's test number two. Test number three is the safe harbor. You just spend 500 hours materially participating in your rental activities. And you have to do this for every single rental activity unless you make that, we call it the dash nine election. But unless you make that nine election, that aggregates all of your rental activities into one activity. So if you make that election, then you just have to materially participate in your entire portfolio, which is a lot easier to do. Got it. But if you're grouping in a syndication investment, then you have to hit that 500 hour mark across your entire portfolio. So what that would mean for you, Sam, is if you were working with us, we would say you qualify as a real estate professional, which is great. That's the first hurdle. That's a very difficult hurdle to hit unless you're full time. Uh, So that's good, good first step. The second step though, is how are we going to demonstrate that between your four rentals plus this LP stake that you have in a syndication, how are you gonna demonstrate that you spent 500 hours in material participation activities or service hours? And we're probably gonna tell you, kick the property managers out. You need to go and do it yourself or buy a property that is local to you, rehab it. You'll spend a lot of time into it, sink a lot of time into it and rent it out before the end of the year. So that it's a rental activity within the course of that year. And now you've got your hours. If you can do that, then the syndication investment that you make, what happens is we we recharacterize these rental activities as non-passive. And so if I've grouped in a syndication investment into this, and it produces a loss, that's a non-passive loss, and I can claim that loss against my income. I love it. That's so much more clear now. So A, become a real estate professional or prove that you are, which 
all of my friends can. B, sounds like the best way to do it is 500 hours total in managing your own portfolio. Yes. And yep. here's a question on top of that though. What if, so what if, this is the next level. Let, let's say my friend Grace, <clears throat> she helps me find one of the, she becomes a general partner in a syndication with me. Does, do those activities count towards those 500 hours? They can, okay. but it depends on specifically what is Grace doing. Let's say she's the one that finds the property or she helps do due diligence, just general partnership, mostly due diligence, but not a lot of the day-to-day once we purchase it. Yeah. The initial acquisition phase, if you're playing a heavy handed role in that, those hours can count as personal service hours towards that rental activity. But what we always advise clients on is if you're just raising capital, I would not be very confident that those hours are going to count. Got it. Okay. So raising capital. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That probably wouldn't be real estate related. That's more raising money. Okay. So get to the 500 hours, then we can count it offset our actual earned income with those Mm -hmm. passive losses. Yep. So if we hit real estate professional status, we overcome the presumption that all rentals are passive. Then we have to demonstrate that we materially participated in our rental real estate activities. And if we can do that, then we've recharacterized our rental losses as non-passive. So we've gone from passive to non-passive and now we can claim those non-passive losses. We can deduct them against anything else. Got it. Got it. And curious. So what's the best way to document this? Just have a time log on how much time you spent managing each property or it's a general rule of thumb at all. So we want to stay away from ballpark estimates the best way to document this is to have a time log. Some of our clients will just keep a Google calendar and that's fine too. Whatever gets the information solidified somewhere that we can access it five, five years from now, whenever you get audited, that's what we're looking for. A time log's great. And, and the time log's great because you can be more detailed. You can add notes easily. Whenever you, if you read all these tax court cases on real estate professional status, it is the, it's like the second or third most litigated piece of the tax code. So it's not an area that you want to fool around with. Uh, but when you read all these tax court cases, what they're looking for is credibility. Can you recall the facts in excruciating detail? Got and it. if you can, then you're going to be deemed to be more credible. And the tax court's going to give more weight to your time log, even if an auditor is trying to rip it apart. So you want to be detailed and you have to think five to seven years into the future. If I get audited for this, it's not going to be tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to remember what I did today. I'm not going to remember that I was on this podcast. I've got to go and I've got to go record these hours in a way that's easily searchable and sortable. And I've got to add notes just that'll jog my memory so that I can say, oh yeah, I was on with Sam Grace and Valerie and that was a fun podcast. Got it. Very good. Very good. Cool. Grace, do you want me to unmute you? Do you have any questions on that? Okay. So I have a question about the 500 participating hours. So let's say I'm in California. Let's say I buy something in Reno and I have to drive four or five hours to get there. So 500 hours divided by a whole year, 52 weeks is 10 uh, hours per week. And then, so let's say I have a property there. I drive there. It's like easy four four hours one way. And then when I get there, 
what do I actually have to do? Do I have to pick up a paintbrush or I just order people around and fix up this property? And what do I actually have to do to as a participating activity? So it's personal service hours. The way to think about this is could your rentals have continued operating without you doing anything or without you logging those hours? All the time we get questions about education hours and research hours. People love to say, I spent 200 hours studying a real estate course, or I was involved in this mastermind. So that's got to count. Or I was researching properties. So that's got to count. Those two hours, those two categories are rarely, if ever, going to count. The one time that I would say that they do count, per my reading of the tax court cases, is going to be like somebody in Sam's situation where you have to have 40 hours of continuing ed to maintain your license. Now it'll count because the hours have to be integral to the operations. Does that make sense? So me spending 200 hours in education is not integral to the operations. The rentals are going to continue to perform whether or not I book 200 hours of education. So when you go down to the property, it's the question of what are you doing while you're there? And is that integral to the operations? If you're just going there to watch contractors, that's been a contested piece or that's been contested before in the tax court. The tax court's going to strike that. They're not going to allow you to just watch contractors. That's not integral to the operation. If you've got some sort of quality control that you're stepping through, on a regular basis, then that could be integral to the operation. So you just have to think about like, why are you going down there? And is that time really integral to the operation? And the other thing to think about here too is, is again, it goes back to credibility. The, the tax court, and I always talk about the tax court because I assume we're going to get an audit. We're going to get audited. Auditors not going to agree. So now we go to tax court and this is now it's all public information and we don't, we just don't want to look bad. <laughs> we want to look, we want to look like we know what we're doing. When we get to tax court, the tax court's made up of people that are just regular people. So the, the tax court has consistently in the past ruled against people where they don't believe the hours that have been logged. There's a tax court case where the guy was logging one hour for writing one check. He would do a hundred of those. And in that specific ruling, they basically said, look, based on personal experience, it doesn't take me an hour to write a check. So I can't give you an hour per check. That just doesn't make sense. So we also have to think about that. So we have to think about the credibility piece. If you are trying to explain this to somebody, does it sound legit? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what activities you do at your rentals, but you just have to think about that. They have to be integral to the operations. They have to be moving that rental forward passively, passively just checking in on things is typically not going to fly unless you have a really good reason to be there checking in on things. Okay. Awesome. Grace, in travel else? time, I know that you asked in the chat, you asked if travel time to the rentals counts. The IRS position is that travel time does not count, but there are tax court cases where they have allowed travel time to count. Mm-hmm. So you just have to, it's probably one of those things where with our clients, we would prefer you to see, we would prefer to see that your material participation hours come from actually operating that rental. If we are close and the travel time gets us over, we'll take the position because the tax court will likely might side with us. But the IRS position is that travel time will not count. Brandon, what about travel time for due diligence in buying the property? That's same thing. The IRS position is that it's not going to count. Really? And hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Tax court might side with you. It just depends on, again, how credible you are. So if you're booking hundreds of hours of travel time and you've inflated all of your other hours too, then you're not going to look very credible. If your credit card statements, the court's going to subpoena your bank statements, your credit card statements. If your credit card statements show that you're in London traveling, like there was a 2018 tax court case, a uh, woman had seven properties, nine units, I think, or maybe some, somewhere around there, but she recorded the time log that had a ton of hours on it. Court subpoenas her credit card statements and she's, you know, swiping her credit card in London while <laughs> traveling while her time log says she's at the rental doing repairs. Mm. So credibility goes down the tank, right? So you have to, the paper trail has got to match. And the easiest way to do that is just to make sure that you log the actual time that you're completing, the actual task that you're completing, and you do it on an ongoing basis, not retroactively. Got it. Question on, so let's say they're part of the general partnership and we have a weekly management call. That's usually only an hour. Would that be an integral activity? Probably not. Really? Could be for some, okay. but probably not for all. Uh, you have to get over the investor level hours. You would have to prove that these are not investor level hours. And you can akin this to reviewing a property manager's statements. A property manager is the one that's doing all the material participation activity. They're the one that is managing the rental, collecting the rents, doing the repairs, keeping up with the maintenance, figuring out evictions and dealing with all of that. The people that are reviewing the property manager's statements are investors and investor level hours are not material participation hours because again, does that rental operation is reviewing the property management statements integral to the rentals operations? You might argue yes, but historically you're going to lose that argument. Interesting. So even as a GP who's managing the, the property manager and property managers reporting to them each week, that sounds like that's still gray area. Definitely a great area, but in every structure and every syndication structure that, that we've been a part of GP does not, not all GPs are made equal, right? There are GPs that are very involved and there are GPs that are not involved and that can all be within one GP group. You right. could have five GPs, one who is heavily involved and in reporting back to the other four who might've helped with the acquisition. But after that, their role's done. So if their role is pretty much done and they're just getting updates, that's investor level hours. That's not material participation hours at that point. Perfect. Grace, Valerie, TJ, any other questions on this topic? Let me unmute you. Okay. So let's say travel time doesn't count. So let's say I buy two properties locally. They are flips and I have to go every week, check on it, talk to the contractor, buy material that would more be more like it, more easier to yeah. prove that I participate instead Absolutely. of- Absolutely. But now you said flips though. So for flips, that's gonna count for real estate professional status, right? A, a construction development business, that's a real property trader business. For purposes of hitting 750 hours and more than half our time, that's gonna work great. But remember that second hurdle is material participation in our rental activities. Oh no, so I'm this flip and then rent out. That Great. So, so if you're going to do that, then you're going to make the flip a rental activity. So I would say it's a rental activity that we're rehabbing and probably strike flip from the vocabulary. But, okay. but yeah, that, something like that would be great because you are spending a lot of time rehabbing the property and, and that's all material participation hours. And as long as it's a rental property within that calendar year, you're probably good to go. 
So I just need to rent it out at some point during that calendar year. I can rent it out for three months and then next year I sell it. That would be fine. Yes. Okay. That would come with a whole other slew of tax consequences, of course. <laughs> but in the current year, yes, that would be fine. <laughs> in the current year. Okay. So, yeah. So what is a safe time to keep the rental property before I sell it? Let's just ask that in the tax law. In today's world, at least 12 months because you get lower capital gain rates. If Biden wins, then it's probably not going to matter because he's trying to increase the long-term capital gain rates to the top tax rates. So, mm-hmm. I live in California, so I have to figure this out. Yeah, yeah, but this is federal side, right? So you've got the California piece and California doesn't care. A dollar is a dollar of income. It doesn't matter where it came from. They increase in California tax too. They want to at least. Right. Yeah. I, okay. I think I was okay. looking at it. If Biden wins, Californians will be taxed at their income tax rate for when they sell a property. And that would be about 62% of yeah. your total gain. It's mid 60s. Mm-hmm. Crazy. I can see Valerie's like in pain. She's not in California. No, but she. I'm moving to Arizona. Yeah, Valerie, Grace may want to be your neighbor. Welcome to Arizona, right? Or Nevada has really good. Yeah. Or Utah. Utah. That's right. Okay. Grace doesn't like the snow, though. Okay, Grace. Any other questions before we move on? Or Valerie? Sorry. Go for it. Okay, so let's talk 1031s, Brandon. 1031 exchanges to basically I've done them. I've not done them. Sometimes they don't make a lot of sense, but just curious, do you have many investors foregoing a 1031 exchange to go into a syndication? Oh, sure. Yeah. And what would be the advantages or reasons you may or may not do that? Sure. So let's say it's at the beginning of the year and I sell an asset and I've got 150 K gain and I forego a 1031 exchange. If if at any point during the year I invest 100, we'll just call it 100K into a syndication, I'm going to get a 92,000 or so passive loss that's going to come back to me. And that passive loss can offset my 150K gain. So I've just eliminated some of my tax. And, and I could sell my property at the beginning of the year, like in January, and not run with the 1031 exchange. And then I could invest that 100K into a syndicate that closes and is operational in December. And I could still use the losses that are going to pass back to me to offset my capital gain. So it can be done. The right. risk, of course, is that I don't actually make that subsequent investment and there's no loss to then offset the gain with. We really like 1031 exchanges. We advocate for them, but we do also use them as a trump card. So we try to explore alternative means to liquidate a property depending on the size of the gain before we go to that 1031 exchange route but it's nice to always have it there in your back pocket. Got it. So let me give you a scenario just to hit this again. So I'm selling one of my properties right now. I'll make a hundred thousand on it before. And the property that I'm looking, actually Valerie's looking at as well. I'm putting that money into uh, the Cincinnati deal that we just closed on. So it's 282 doors. It's operational. I'll get a K1 and and they're they're already doing the cost seg study. They're putting 1.5 million into rehab. Not all of that will be done this year, but I'll get a significant loss this year based on the 100000 I put into that Cincinnati deal. They estimate, so the operator, my partners, based on our past performance, we're, we're telling people we've gotten around 60000 per 100000 in passive losses. So can you jump into the passive losses side of things, how you would say 90 versus 60 versus 50, and how that all plays out when 
my CPA at the end of the year says, Hey, you didn't do a 1031. How are we going to offset this? Yeah. I, I don't know all the facts of your situation, so I can't speak to that specifically. Sure. There might be something there that is actually blocking you. It's not something that we run into very often though. So that would be more of a unique case, I think. But in terms of if I'm going to go and invest $100,000 into a real estate syndicate, I'm going to want to know what the loss is that's going to be passed back to me. And the way to figure that out is you want to know how much capital the syndicate is raising from limited partners. Mm -hmm. You want to know what that operating agreement looks like. So what does the waterfall look like? How are losses going to be distributed? You also want to know what the market value or the acquisition cost of the property is going to be. So if I buy a $10 million property and I'm going to raise $3 million to acquire that property, mm -hmm. uh, if my operating agreement says that I'm going to pass losses to my limited partners until their, their capital accounts are all zero, then that means that any loss that exceeds $3 million, let's back up, we're getting a little too complicated too fast. So mm -hmm. My operating agreement, typical operating, operating agreements are going to say, we're going to pass losses to limited partners until their capital accounts reach zero. So if I've raised $3 million from my limited partners, then collectively their capital accounts are $3 million. So if I do a cost seg study on this $10 million property, and let's say the cost seg study generates a $2.8 million loss. Let's say, actually, let's do a $2.7 million loss since that's easier for maths. Uh, $2.7 million loss. $2.7 into three is 90%. So if I invested 100K in this deal, I'm gonna get a $90,000 loss allocated to me. That's how you can figure that out. Uh, if my cost seg study generates a three and a half million dollar loss, now if I'm a limited partner in this deal, I get, if I put 100K in, I get 100K back because you've exceeded all the limited partner capital accounts in the aggregate. Also in this case, the general partners potentially get mm -hmm. to take that additional 500K in losses without having to put much money in the deal, depending on how your debt is structured. It really complicated really quick there. But the point is that the losses, if you are a limited partner to figure out what losses you should be expecting, you look at the total deal value, you look at what the cost of results or expected results are supposed to be. And then you look at how much capital in the aggregate has been raised from limited partners. And you just have to review that operating agreement to figure out how do the losses get past the limited partners? But like I said, most will say yeah. we're going to wipe the limited partners out first with right. losses. And that's so. what ours says. So we'll wipe out limited partners first. We also are putting in, so I think our cost seg on this deal we're looking at in Cleveland, it's 10 million bucks. Cost seg says two and a half million. And then we're putting another like 800,000 in capital X. Now we can use CapEx monies as well for those passive losses, correct? You mean as you make improvements to the property? As we, re let's say we, yeah, we put 500,000 into new roofs and different things this year. Yeah. So yes, you can. At what rate? That's the question. So I could put a new roof on a property. It doesn't mean that I can write off the cost of that roof today. Uh, I might be stuck depreciating that over 27 and a half years. Or if I bought a really large property, perhaps I'm timing my rehab strategically so that I can apply the 2013 tangible property regulations in a tax efficient manner. And the more units you have under one roof, the more flexible that becomes. Right. So you can certainly structure it in a way to maximize your tax benefits.
if you're just doing a full renovation without much, without really thinking about tax benefits, then you're probably going to be stuck depreciating the improvements over a long period of time. Got it. Very good. Grace, Valerie, any questions on that? So when the Cincinnati deal, when are we going to see the losses? We will get it this year or when do you have Yeah, that? cost seg should be done uh, very soon. And I'm guessing within the month, we'll know that final number. I see. Okay. Awesome. Brandon, anything else you can think of when these people are, are looking at syndicators or syndication investments? Any other words of advice from a very experienced real estate CPA? Like, like what should limited partners be looking for? Look for or beware of or anything like that. Yeah, the biggest questions are just, what does the operating agreement say that I'm going to get as a limited partner? What tax strategies are you as a general partner going to be implementing? And then again, what does that look like for my return? And, and that is relatively standard across syndicates. We're, we're going to cost seg, we're going to elect out of business interest limitations, and we're probably good to go. There are some additional questions though that limited partners should be asking the general partners. And what I like to remind our clients of is when you are investing in a general partner or into a syndicate, you're investing more in the team than you are the underlying asset. And you have to really understand what that means. We have seen syndicates go very poorly, great deals that just are run bad, badly. Mm -hmm. We've also seen bad deals at the at least the forefront on the spreadsheet, bad deals that are turned into amazing deals with great teams. So you really have to understand who you're investing with and you need to be able to ask questions along those lines. If I'm going to invest with you, Sam, I'm going to ask you if you die, what happens? And not yeah. a lot of people will like to ask that question. Yeah. If, if you die, what, what happens to this deal? What happens if you run away with my money? Yeah. What happens if we can't contact you for, six months or what is the expectation for communication and then what happens if you fail to do that what recourse am i going to have and, and those are tough questions but very important questions to to make sure that you're asking your syndicate group yeah and there's i know people where actually we just helped the small deal here in utah I actually have an assisted living for sale right now that i was a limited partner initially not why well, I wasn't a limited partner. They were trying to get me to put money in the deal. I took a look at the PPM and everything. And, and these operators were doing a terrible job. They had already lost money. They were embezzling money. It was yeah. a mess. The deal was amazing. The property, the actual, like you said, the deal was awesome. The operators were, were horrendous and, and the people ended up losing almost all of their money. One, one thing that you can ask to protect yourself is, and not to toot my own horn, but <laughs> who's your CFO? Are you guys in-house CFO? And uh, do you have a third party that's double checking you on anything? What is their role in this? We get a lot of new syndicators that go through courses and they come to us and they're like, okay, we're ready to sign you guys on. You know, you guys have a great reputation. Our investors will love seeing you on the PPM and all that stuff. And we're like, yeah, sure. It's going to be $15,000 to do this and another 15 to do that. And they're like, whoa, man, my course <laughs> said it was $800. Yeah. Can you do that? And I'm like, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way that you're going to get anything good for $800. Right. And you are taking other people's money. You have to really be careful with that because that's a completely new responsibility. You're not just doing this yourself where if you fail, it's okay. Okay. If you fail, you also fail everybody else. Now you got to pay them all back. 
So you as an, as a limited partner, you need to be asking those types of questions. Who, who's your accounting team? What is their role? Because sometimes syndicators will block the accounting team. They'll just say, you can just do transactions, you're not allowed to do anything else, mm-hmm. which is fine. We've run into situations where people are moving money between syndicates and we book it as do twos, do froms. Hey, you can't just move the money. Now you owe the syndicate. And then they're like, change it to something else. And we're like, we're firing you as a client because this is too <laughs> risky for us now. Yeah. And wow. uh, you just have to be, you have to be careful. You have to be really careful. There's, I think that, I think too, a lot of syndicators have been, uh, and I don't know how long you guys have been operating, but a lot of syndicators have been carried by the increase in asset values yep. since the 09 crisis or 0809 crisis. Bad operations when the asset value is going to go up regardless of how great you are as an operator right. in most cases. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years now that we have COVID facing us and this economic, uh, the economy is stalling. It'll be interesting to see because I think that you'll see the great operators really come out ahead and you'll see a lot of money funneling to those great operators as a result. I think you're right. And it was interesting because, and I haven't been doing this super long, but I've been investing in real estate for 10 years, been investing in syndications for the past two and a half, almost three. And it's interesting you say that because that's my biggest problem with the market right now is people will say, Sam, your returns don't look that amazing. Yeah, I'm conservative. And these guys are just like, their past numbers are based on a market doing amazing. It's, they're not actually doing that amazing. And if you look at their numbers and how they operate a deal, it's scary because they have yeah. no fudge factor. They've simply, simply been doing good because of dumb luck. And it's very scary. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. And well, I think also- too, it's just, if you're a limited partner, you just have to understand again that you are investing in a business and you need to understand the mindset of the person running that business. You need to understand what your $50,000 or $100,000 is going to get or what they're going to do with that. What do their operations look like? We have clients that a deal comes out and bam, they wire a hundred thousand bucks. Just wait a second. <laughs> do you understand the operations? Do you understand how, how all this is flowing? And a lot of times they don't. And yep. it's just a fire just spray and 90% of my deals do fine. 10% won't. And hopefully the 10% that don't sink me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's just a little more due diligence. <laughs> yeah. Coronavirus has been great. It, it's been tough because we lost a bunch of deals. We had to pause on and it's been rough that way, but it really made some of those operators that we're talking about really nervous. Yeah. We can sleep at night. That's our thing is we know we have the six months in reserves. We have the right, accounting. My business partner has his master's in accounting, which is great. He's not going to be our CFO. He's operations. So we're going to look into using you guys, but there are partnerships out there that don't have reserves. They don't have fudge factor and coronavirus all of a sudden made them look very bad and made us look very good because of how conservative we've been. We buy less than half the deals that these other people will, but they're buying deals that don't have fudge factor. And Right. They're well, even telling their investors during the shutdown, guess what? We can't distribute money this year right? because we don't have enough reserves. And that right. makes us look great. And too, like you've, everybody goes through the same course. They underwrite the same way. They've got 3%, they got a you know 20% rent hike and then a 3% price appreciation, 3% rent appreciation after that each year. And you're not going to get that anymore. It's gone. Yep. <laughs> yep. So all these people that bought these deals in 2019, early 2020, thinking that was the play, they're tapping into their CapEx reserve just to 
cover the operating costs at this point. Yeah. And so you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Value add has changed. And, but again, I think it's important for limited partners to be asking those types of questions. How are you underwriting the deal? How are you operating this deal? Who's doing what? It's really important. Really I love important. that. Thank you for bringing that up. And there's a lot of risk, a lot of different examples I could give. We're, we're looking at one in Cleveland now where we're at 2% rent bumps, but also 2% cost increases, expense increases, 10% rent increases, but it actually stress tests, or I call it the recession test. We could be 33% vacant in that deal and still break even without dipping into our, our reserves. And that's why it takes us a lot more properties and a lot longer to, to actually buy one is because we have to go through a lot of those bad deals to find one that can be that conservative. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Brandon, we, we need to finish up. I want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to know how you got into doing what you're doing. And really, let's go into that and then focus on why you went from accounting and, and hyper-focused on real estate. Yeah. So I when I graduated college, I went to work for the big four. I was about three months into that career and decided that was not for me. Okay. <laughs> I had a lot of ideas. Nobody wanted to hear my ideas and uh, just didn't feel like I was heard in the corporate environment. I started trying to figure out how to get out, found rental real estate as a pretty viable option, bought a rental and realized it was going to take me about a decade to replace my income. And I was like, I'm not okay with that. So then I, uh, I've always been into the entrepreneurial side and I've always been trying to test things out all through high school and college. I've had many like small startup failures that really looking back are laughable. But anyway, <laughs> um, decided that I was going to go the entrepreneur route. And then the big question was, what do I do? And I was like, well, I've got a CPA. I'm interested in real estate. Maybe I'll just open up a little real estate shop. So I found bigger pockets, uh, started asking selfishly at first, just asking a lot of questions, but then realized a lot of people were asking tax questions. So I just started answering the tax questions. And over time, it just built, it just snowballed into this big thing where, where people started calling me up and asking if I was taking on clients and the rest is history. Yeah, but we only do real estate. And at first, I, when I decided at first I was going to do this, my main motivating reason was I want to make sure that me investing in real estate is a smart move. So I want to see all these rich people's tax returns and just make sure that it's not all the stuff that you read on Forbes, an entrepreneur about investing in real estate is not a bunch of BS. And uh, I can assure you, it's not a bunch of BS. So <laughs> it's a very it. good place to be. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. So you would say, and it's funny because I get a lot of investors who are, oh, I want to diversify. So I'm going to put half a million this year into the stock market. So I'll give you half a million for real estate. And I'm like, but you're not your portfolio in the stock market hasn't really made very much money over the last four or five years. They're like, I know I just need to diversify. So from your perspective, what's the smart move there? I, I think that everybody has different risk tolerances. And I think that's something that is very individualized and should be respected. So I, I actually try to stay away from telling people pull out of the stock market and, and go into real estate because you just never know. And you never know, they might pick the wrong type of asset class too. They might pick the asset class that's on the downtrend. So I'm actually a fan of getting the diversification. I think it's smart to be in equities. I think it's smart to be in debt. We don't see enough people in debt. And then I also think it's really smart to own rental real estate. Awesome. Good answer. Good answer. I love it. Tell me about your family life. What, what do you have going on there? Uh, so I'm married. I have an 11 month old son Nice. and uh, just trying to build an empire. Nice. I love it. So how do you do it? Because this is something Grace and I talk about a ton. How do you split your time? How do you focus on you're a really busy guy? 
You have 19 employees. How do you find time to hang out with that 11 month old? <laughs> For the past five years, the, my time has relatively been non-existent. No, yeah, it's really just a, I, I looked at a lot of the other CPA firms across the country. And I talked to a lot of other CPA firm owners across the country. And what I realized that these guys do is they all take on client relationships. Then they try to manage their teams and they also try to scale their practices and they work like dogs nonstop and they, they either burn out or they become very cynical. For me, I decided early on that I was not going to take on the client relationships. I was at first, but as I scaled, I was going to pass the client relationships to the smart people that I hired. And it's just a matter of figuring out how to continue delegating that type of stuff that CPA firm owners would normally try to do themselves. I try actively not to do. And I've just started seeing some success with this, like across the board. The client delegation has been amazing for years mm -hmm. and it's allowed me to invest a lot of time into growth, which is why we're where we are. But now I'm like, I'm starting to offload sales. I'm starting to offload a lot of the other operational tasks to different people in the firm. And that's elevating me a little bit. So I, we hired a, an internal sales consultant a month and a half ago. And my sales time per week has dropped from 35 hours to about 12, nice. which has been great. So to answer your question, I don't have it figured out yet, but the answer is just keep delegating stuff <laughs> to it. smart people who can do the job. <laughs> Hire smart people. And yeah. it's funny that you say that because there's a lot of new syndicators out there that are trying to do this on their own because they don't want to share the profit. There's great money to be made in syndication. I brought on a partner immediately because I knew I needed a someone else to help. And then we just brought on another partner. And I think that's so smart. Hire really smart people. Maybe you got to pay them for their time, but I think it's worth it because, and I know Grace agrees. She has two, two girls. I have two kids and it's not worth it to me to make the amount of money that we're making without spending the time with our kids and our spouses and friends and family. And, and that's why I'm doing this. So, um, Glad that you said that. Anything we can promote for you right now, other than telling people to talk to you about their taxes and, and specifically real estate uh, tax questions? The Real Estate CPA Podcast. That's a great, we've got 120 episodes. We dive into a whole bunch of things related to tax and accounting. So start there. That'll be a really nice, a really good uh, value add for all your listeners. Beautiful. I'll make sure I put that, the link into the show notes. Really appreciate you having you on. This has been really good to, to get into these topics, but thank you. We'll try to get you some listeners and also some clients, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Appreciate it, Sam. <laughs>